Welcome to It's a Good Life, where it's all about helping entrepreneurs think, feel, and do better. Before we begin, I want to tell you about It's a Good Life Plus, our new ad-free subscription on Apple Podcasts. All you've got to do is open the Apple Podcast app and click on It's a Good Life. You'll see a banner under the logo that removes ads and unlocks early access to episodes. It's just five bucks a month, and there's even a free trial. Either way, continue listening to It's a Good Life and sharing the show with others. And here's our man, Brian Buffini. Top of the morning and welcome to It's a Good Life. I have a very special guest for us today on a subject very close to our heart here at It's a Good Life. His name is Nicholas Eberstadt, and he's a political economist. He holds the Henry Wendt Chair at the American Enterprise Institute and is author of over 20 books and monographs, the latest of which is Men Without Work, the post-pandemic edition. I've been following Nicholas's work for many, many years now, and I'm excited to share this interview with you. We, we all know the stats, the 11 million open jobs, people working from home, people leaving the workforce, all of these different issues, and there's lots of theories. But Nicholas has been studying this for years and years before the pandemic, and I believe what we'll talk about today is how the pandemic exposed this even further, the trend that's been the case for some time, as well as magnified it. And so, Nicholas, I want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for taking time to be with us today. Brian, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. So just a little bit of background before we dive into your new book. Uh, tell us a bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, and how'd you get into economics, of all things? Uh, born in New York City. Uh, I uh, went, I uh, spent an awful lot of time in uh, school, and I kind of stumbled into this by accident. Most of the good things that have happened in my life have been uh, accidental or providential. First day of college, first class, I stumbled into this course on population, resources, and the environment, and I thought this was the coolest stuff I'd ever seen. It wouldn't have been cool to everybody, but it's been a passion of mine for almost 50 years. Well, isn't that what work is all about? It's about finding that which you're passionate about, and you like I said, you've been working at it for 50 years. I'm People ask me all the time, why aren't you retired? Why aren't you? I'm like, man, I'm never retiring. I love what I do. I, I plan on doing it a long, long time. And the economics of it has long since been the motivator. And I think that's what we want to talk about because I did a, a podcast, um, the first season of our show, it was episode 289. It was called The Blessing of Work. And it was right in the middle of the pandemic when I had young people coming up to me going, I'm working hard. My friends are sitting at home and they're making more than I am sitting at home. Am I a dope? Am I foolish? And so I did this whole program on the blessing of work and how just one aspect of it is the monetary aspect and why it's good for the soul. It's good for the heart. It's good for the mind. It's good. And you're talking about men, especially uh, a lot of times our identity and connection is found in it. Can you talk about the meaning of work actually and why it's so important across the board, but also from an economic perspective? Well, of course, it's. Um, I mean, work is important for financial reasons, but it's the non-pecuniary is huge. I mean, work is a service to others that helps to complete you. It's part of your connection to our uh, to our world. It's part of our connection to society, to family. This is what. Uh, I mean, it brings fulfillment. It brings uh, satisfaction. It brings. Uh, I dare say happiness to people. And you can tell this to other people and they may or may not believe you if they haven't done it, but you got to do it to know it. Yeah. And I have the Dostoevsky quote that says, deprived of meaningful work, 
men and women lose their reason for existence, they start going raving mad. And, you know, I think there's a lot of that. And we're dealing with it and we're seeing it. And I would also argue even the dynamics of the work from home. I have 240 employees. Some of their work is conducive towards work from home, some not. But I would say all have lost the little bit of the gaps that come from just that synergy and connection and interaction and connection. So it's not just those who aren't working, but those who are working and doing it all remotely. There's just been a lot lost. And I'd love to kind of roll up our sleeves and and get into it. You you wrote the book originally, Men Without Work, prior to the pandemic. And now we're, we've got the brand new post-pandemic issue. Can you just kind of give us a quick overview of the problem and what led you to write Men Without Work? I kind of make my living by uh, pointing at problems that are hiding in plain sight. The things that everybody knows, but they haven't really put their finger on it. And back in 2016, I did this book on men without work. Back then, I called it America's Invisible Crisis, because uh, as I was reading uh, reading the news, kind of like everybody else, I heard this um, disc- these discordant, uh, dissonant soundings. On the one hand, we were getting all of this happy talk about how we were at full employment at... Uh, and on the other hand, about half of the American public said we were in a recession. So how do you have full employment and you're in a recession at the same time, the way you're feeling about things? Well, the answer turns out to be that we've got an employment statistics system that was built to fight the last war, to look at the Great Depression. And back in the Depression era, uh, if you were out of work, if you were a guy out of work, you were looking for a job. The idea that there would be millions and millions and millions of guys who would neither be working nor looking for work never crossed people's minds. But that is the post-war reality. And by the time that I wrote the first edition of this book, there were, we talk about prime age men, you know, the backbone of the economy, the 25 to 54s. For every prime age guy who was out of work and looking for a job, there were three guys who are neither working nor looking for work. Well, fast forward to today. We have depression level work rates for prime age men, despite the fact that we have these seemingly marvelous, marvelously low unemployment rates. The problem has taken on a new face now. As you mentioned, we've got 11 million unfilled jobs. We've got a peacetime labor shortage, something we've never seen in our country before. And the overall workforce is about 4 million lower than it would have been on pre-pandemic trends. So it's not the new face of the flight from work isn't just these uh, prime age men. We're seeing this problem pop up in other parts of our workforce as well. Now, obviously, now we have the dynamic, and again, it's men without work, and it's, there's a phraseology to that, a communication to that. Obviously, women have played a huge part in the workforce now for a century. Is it different for men than for women? It started way earlier for the guys. Uh, I, can, I can trace this problem back to the mid-1960s. The first two decades of the post-war era, there was no trend. Basically, all guys worked, and uh, there was frictional unemployment, and there was only a tiny fraction of men who were not in the workforce. Uh, But from the mid 
60s to today, it's been almost a straight line upwards in terms of this flight from work, the labor force dropout for this group. Uh, so that's the longest and the you know, most acute part of this problem. Since about the year 2000, we've started to see a decline in labor force participation for women. Now, of course, women have always worked, as you were saying, it's just since the end of the post-war era, they've gotten paid for it in the marketplace. <laughs> they were not displacing men for the first half century of the post-war era. Uh, if they were displacing them, the uh, overall you know, work rate and labor force participation levels would have been flat. But, but those were going up, so they were kind of augmenting or supplementing. Something started happening around the year 2000, and both rates have been going down. And in particular, I mean, I don't want to get, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Uh, I don't want to like flash red lights where we don't need to. Say there's a yellow light flashing for uh, prime age women who are not currently married and have no kids at home. We're starting to see some of the same things we saw with the men without work for this group of women, and there are millions and millions of them. So where is this all going? I mean, if, if work is becoming devalued in our society, becoming optional in our society, people are choosing to check out, where does that leave us? Where does that, where does that take us to? There's nothing good that comes from this. Nothing good that comes from this. I mean, I was trained in economics, and there's this lazy mental tick that you're trained to in school of this. You're told that free time is leisure. Leisure has a very particular meaning. Leisure is when you use your free time to restore yourself or to uplift yourself. Uh, you can also use leisure in ways that's terribly destructive, uh, that is degrading. I mean, there's, we've got 2,000 years of Christian theology that tells us that sloth is one of the seven deadly sins. Through being slothful, you can cause other people to sin. You know, the, the idea of scandal, right? Uh, so... What one does with one's time matters immensely here. And so obviously, you know, there's, there's implications on gross domestic product. There's uh, implications for the future growth of an economy. And then you also have the social structures. What are the consequences there? Well, I mean, it's a 360, as I was indicating. It's uh, what happens, slower growth for the economy, bigger economic gaps, bigger wealth gaps, um, probably more dependence upon social welfare, uh, more pressure on fragile families, less social mobility, less um, confidence in our institutions, less social capital, if you want to use a kind of a fancy term. I mean, all of the malaise that we see today uh, it tracks with, uh, with this part of the new misery. What are people doing instead of working? Well, we can listen to what they say they're doing. Now, we all know that everybody lies, but at least give us a kind of a baseline to see what, uh, what people say they're doing. The U.S. government collects these things called time use surveys. They want to know what Adults are doing from the time they wake up until the time they go to sleep because labor, you know, Bureau of uh, Labor wants to know where people are working and when they're working and stuff. But they also ask people who aren't working. When you ask the guys 
who are neither working nor looking for work. It turns out that about a tenth of them are just full-time students who are getting ready to go back to work. And, and they look like kind of everybody else. But the huge majority uh, report a really distressing self-portrait. Uh, basically, they don't do civil society. They don't do worship. They don't do charity. They don't do volunteering. You'd think they had nothing but time on their hands, but they don't seem to find a lot of time to help out with people at home or to help out with chores in the house. Uh, they don't even find that much time to get out of the house. Um, what they say they do is watch. They watch screens. The surveys don't tell us what's, what they're watching. They don't tell us what types of screens. But like 2,000 hours a year, which would count as a pretty good full-time job in employment, uh, add to that the uh, self-reported item that almost half before the pandemic, almost half of these prime age guys said they were taking pain medication every day. Uh, so it's not just World of Warcraft. It's like World of Warcraft stoned. And that is not a skill set that's going to get you back into the economy. Yeah, it's a, it's a slippery slope. And, you know, on many cases, right? It's like, oh, are you guys just old fashioned and you, you know, you were raised to have a job and this is the way it's supposed to be. And, you know, this is the new world. You know, I, I just think so many people don't realize the value of work and what it does for you, uh, for others, how it creates a dynamic. You know, it's, it's, you want something done, ask a busy person. Colonel Sanders, Kentucky Fried Chicken said, a, a man will rust out long before he wears out. We've got this piece, and, and again, politically, they'll quote the unemployment rate, but then over here, there's the participation rate. And a, a bottom line is, overall, we, I'd, say, I'd say most people know it's not a good thing to not work, but I think what you highlight is how significant a problem it is. And let's talk a little bit on the solution side of it. You talk about the revitalizing of American businesses, which is obviously a big passion of ours here at It's a Good Life. Why are entrepreneurs more important than ever? in today's economy? Well, we need, we need entrepreneurs because we need to have the churn. We need to have the dynamic churn that provides the creative destruction that puts all of the pieces and all of the ingredients in our economy to work in a more productive manner. Because doing that creates more demand for labor, create, creates more demand for work. And it, uh, it, it also has a sort of an incalculable but I think really important impact upon mentality, upon the outlook of uh, even all of society. I mean, part of what's been so uh, remarkable and I dare say exceptional about the USA has been its optimism and its confidence in the future. And one of the reasons for this confidence is the idea that, well, <laughs> There really are these boundless opportunities if you can go and seek them. And this isn't just old kind of like Horatio Alger propaganda from a you know, bygone era. I mean, people live this every day. And you are an excellent example, and you are not alone. Look at all of our newcomers, all of our migrants who come to this country and who make something from nothing. It happens every day here. Well, I wrote a book about it. I wrote a book about it because I was on a panel and there was a Harvard discussion and it was, this is, boy, this is six or seven years ago and 50% of millennials said the American dream no, is no longer available to them. And it just kind of, I was like shattered by that statement. 
And so I wrote a book called The Emigrant Edge, which became a New York Times bestseller. I went out and interviewed just hundreds of immigrants who had come to this country with nothing and made phenomenal businesses and great fortunes and then broke it all down into seven duplicatable principles that anybody could follow, whether you're an immigrant or not. And, and like I said, I think maybe the thing I'm most proud of, you know, Mike, I grew up with nothing. So that's easy. I came here with, you know, 92 bucks in my wallet and got in a motorcycle accident, owed a bunch of money and great. And this is the place to get in a motorcycle accident, right? To come to America. The dynamic for me is my kids grew up in an affluent home. You know, the old man had done well. They traveled well, they've vacation homes and all these types of things. But my kids have the emigrant edge, you know, so it can be taught. These are principles that can be taught and communicated through families. And, you know, we've seen the dynamics of whether church, family, all these different institutions that have become under challenge, the school systems. And so is it a black page? Are we doomed? Is there a chance? I mean, is there hope? What, what can we do to turn this thing around? Of, of, of course there's hope. This is the United States of America. <laughs> there's hope. And there's a lot of hope. Two things, uh, two things I'd mention, but there's a lot more we could mention. One is the family. I'm so glad that you uh, pointed to that. I mean, the uh, strong families are just a seedbed of all sorts of great habits for people for their for their future. That's where you, where you learn about them. You don't have to ha- come from a strong family. It's a great advantage, you know. And we can all thank our parents, you know, when we've had that blessing. Uh, you know, we had no reason to deserve, but we, we got that. Um, so, so family, just rec- being able to speak the truth uh, is kind of an important thing about the importance of family. And faith, you mentioned faith. I mean, faith, values, motivation, outlook, all of those are so tremendously intertwined with results. Um, and the United States, as an exceptional country, as I mentioned, has gone through a number of great awakenings in the past. We don't know when they're going to come. There's no government department that micromanages these. They come up spontaneously by a uh, providence beyond us. Uh, And uh, we don't know when the next one of these is going to happen. Uh, But but we have it within our society spontaneously, in addition to whatever else our government may do, uh, to bring about the sorts of changes which we need to revitalize our country and to banish this new misery. Yeah, amen is my answer. You know, I think about my wife was on the 1988 Olympic team, and her favorite movie is uh, Miracle. <laughs> and, you know, there's the, all the great speeches in the 1980 hockey team and so on and so forth. But one of the features in the middle of that movie, which brings me great hope, is Jimmy Carter's speech. And it was the speech that ultimately may have sank his presidency in addition to his policies. He goes, we have a crisis of confidence. And he's talking in 1979. And he goes, for the first time in our history, the majority of people believe that the next five years will not be as good as the last five years. And he was talking in 1979 that people had thought politics is so bad the world events are so bad. The Olympic Games are canceled. Our hostages are being held in Iran. We're waiting in line for gas. We have big inflation. We have all, all the problems that have kind of surfaced here recently that Jimmy Carter was dealing with and that people said, this is the end of it. And you think about it. Imagine you'd started a business in 1980. Imagine you'd bought real estate in 1980. Imagine you bought stocks in 1980. You'd be a gazillionaire today. And so the truth of the matter is, 
in many ways, people feel just like that Jimmy Carter era. They feel like, you know, and, he, and again, he happened to preside over time with OPEC and all these different things, gas shortages, inflation, record high interest rates, political unrest, all these different things. And people were down, 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 down. And guess what? Things changed from a work standpoint, from a prosperity standpoint, whether it be a spiritual revivals that have taken place, all these different dynamics. And I do have that great hope myself. Um, I think of the quote, America's an anvil that's worn out many a hammer. I know that was a quote about the church in, in medieval times, but people have applied it to America. And um, as you are doing this work, and I have the book here, and this has been great, Men Without Work, the post-pandemic edition. And the reason I love this stuff, as many people know, I do a lot of economics and I interview a lot of economists because I feel like studying the past and studying history gives me a leg up. I've done very, very well in my life, been able to project markets and predict markets. In fact, it staggers me like some of the stuff I see on Wall Street where they miss some of the most obvious signs. And it's obviously because they're not reading history, right? And you're, you're laughing because there's just things, if you read the past and study it well, it certainly gives you a roadmap. What would be the best advice you would have for someone who's either starting a business today or running a business today when so many people are kind of down and think, you know, this is the where it's going and America's on a downward trend and this is just where it's at? You've got tremendous opportunity because you're a contrarian thinker and uh, nobody's, uh, nobody's going to be earning money in my lifetime betting against the United States. The most important thing, of course, isn't being like a genius. It isn't like having like some fantastic uh, athletic talent. The most important thing is persistence. And it's uh, being ready to get back up the 101st time after you've fallen down 100 times. That is the most important, I think, habit that successful people all share. Yeah, amen. I love that. It's interesting I, as you're talking, you know, you know, I'm from Ireland and a number of years ago, I did a speaking tour through Europe. And when I would go in my event preparation, I would be asking all these questions and I would say, well, what, what's the single biggest gift I could give your audience? What's the biggest need they have and what can I bring to them? And across the board, each place I went in one language or another, whether it was Greece or Spain or Portugal or Italy or wherever, they would say, can you help our people have more ambition? Mm. And I've done 25, 2600 seminars, most of them in the US and Canada. And never once did I have to try to create ambition for an audience, shape it, direct it. But it just, it's just not in the American DNA. Ambition is in the DNA. And even, you know, the much maligned younger people of the Gen Z's and the millennials, there is an ambition there. It's a different packaging and a different presentation. But the ambition still is there. And it's, it's there to be tapped into. And as an employer myself, I'm looking to find these ambitious young people and they're there. They stand out amongst the crowd, so they're easy to identify. And there's still significant opportunities in the marketplace. I believe we're right at where Jimmy Carter was in 1979. And now's the time to buy. Now's the time to invest. And now's the time to grow. Well, it's a funny thing, Brian. I mean, uh, I, I don't get out as much as you, but I get out a little bit. And I'm really struck by how afraid kids are today. There's so much fear and anxiety, and this is the most prosperous, the most protected generation in, uh, in American history. And so part of what 
you're saying resonates with me in this way. I think that our uh, our millennials and our Zoomers, our Generation Z, I think they want to be as successful as everybody else, but they're afraid they can't do it. And part of what we have to say is, don't be afraid. You can do it. Yeah, that's powerful. That's powerful. Well, don't be afraid. Persevere. Stand out amongst the competition and trust that better days are ahead. And like you said, I think anxiety is the number one pandemic we deal with today. And young people are definitely struggling with that. I see it in a lot of my kids' friends and people I get exposed to. It's, it's great when you have, I have six kids and they range from 20 up to 30. And so right in that key group, I mean, I meet all their friends and, you know, we'll have 80 of them over for a ball game at the house and things like that. On one hand, I'm inspired by them. They think differently. They, they want to do things where they, they want to believe in the companies they do business with. They, they're most socially aware. They want, you know, less emissions. They want workers treated well. They don't want to buy products where people are abused and things like that. They want balance. But I also want to, they want to grow and they want to have a better life. And those of them that have, um, end up having families, like nothing puts manners on you like having a couple of kids. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And nothing brings out the provider impulse like having a couple of kids. Well, I've got five questions I ask every guest we'll finish up on. But just last word here on, on Men Without Work. What are people going to get when they get their hands on this, on this book? They're going to see what has gone wrong in our, or they're going to see some of what's gone wrong in our pandemic and post-pandemic era. And they're going to see that it's not just the virus, but it's the way that we responded in terms of our policy mistakes in dealing with this terrible catastrophe. And I find as an employer and an entrepreneur, it also gives me a little bit of an insight into the marketplace and the workforce that allows me to navigate. And so it's a very, very valuable resource. And I thank you for your work. You're, you're really the only guy speaking on this subject. So I'm sure that's a lonely task, but I'm glad you have this great passion for it and a great gift for it. So I appreciate it. I have five questions I ask every guest, no matter who we've had on. And so you don't know what they are. I'm just going to rapid fire them. And uh, oftentimes some neat stuff comes out of this. So number one, what's the single best piece of advice you've ever received? Um, marry that girl. <laughs> Who gave that to you? My grandmother. Oh, there you go. Because grandma knew. She met her. said, Nikki, when are you going to marry that girl? All right. And how many years ago was that? Uh, 35. 35. Okay. Well done. Well done. What one talent or gift do you wish you possessed that you currently don't? Uh, I wish that I were a little bit more patient than I am. I've always, I've, that's always been one of my failings. Interesting. You come across as a very patient man to me. So, and, well, and I practice. <laughs> <laughs> this book would require a lot of patience. The research in this is extraordinary. And so uh, I guess it's, it's aligned to your purpose. So that's good. What book has been most instrumental in your life? Hmm. Um, it changes over time. It always changes. But I'd say that at the moment, what I'm thinking about is a rather peculiar book. It's uh, called Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy by an economist called Joseph Schumpeter. He talks about how our system is going to make the prosperity which will allow an elite that despises it to rise. Wow. What movie do you watch over and over again? If it's on, you always stop. Godfather. The Godfather. Tell us what we need to know about, uh, about adult life in a competitive world. I got to tell you, I watched it last night. <laughs> My kids are like, Dad, really? And it just came on, and I'm like, you know what? I'm, 
I've had a couple of hard weeks here. I've been traveling, traveling. I sat down, and uh, boy, last but not least, uh, what does a good life mean to you? Um, well, I mean, going to heaven, but we can't uh, guarantee that. But um, uh, having fewer regrets at the very end of it. Fewer regrets. Well, I know this. Sitting at home, playing video games, stoning out, checking out, is leads to a life of regret. And I think for those of us predisposed to work and find the joy in it, rather than cajole and browbeat people, I think it decries upon a lot of us to be a light and an attraction, that this is what the good life looks like. And part of the good life is, is good work. And uh, it's, you said it at the beginning, it's, it's service to others. It forms a great sense of connection, and it forms a great aspect, and it's part of our legacy as human beings. And I, I really love the fact that you're doing this work. I appreciate it so much. I thank you for being a guest today. The best of look with the post-pandemic edition of Men Without Work, I think it's fantastic. It's a quick read, and it's a powerful read, and um, very rich, very rich indeed. And we're going to leave today's show with a little Irish blessing, someone who taught me a lot about work ethic. My 92-year-old mother back in Dublin, and uh, she leaves us every time, Nicholas, with a little Irish blessing. We'll sit here together and enjoy Therese finishing the show. Thanks for being our guest today. May the road rise up to meet you, and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields, and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time.